Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. The risk of starting a sermon with a video clip is that all you're thinking about is you want to see that movie when you go home. That clip was from The Return of the King, which is the third installment in the Lord of the Rings trilogies, the film adaptation based on the books by J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, that scene was arguably the climactic moment of the entire saga where Aragorn is crowned as king over the human race in Middle-earth. It's a scene that, after three really long movies and a long period of strife and war and violence and evil looking like it was going to win, it's a wonderful climactic moment that's filled with hope, and you just sense it. You feel like everyone's ready for a change. Everyone's ready to see all of the mess cleaned up, ready to rebuild, and there is that sort of pregnant feeling of hope. Maybe there's going to be a better day. And that, that um, wonderful moment reminds us of something in Scripture, and in fact, it's not just a coincidental reminder But Tolkien actually wrote The Lord of the Rings in order to present to the world the story of what Jesus Christ did. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but I want to read a passage that that scene reminds me of. It's a passage that comes from the end of the Bible when it pictures what it's going to look like when the new heavens and the new earth are unfurled and Jesus Christ is seated on the throne and he now reigns forever in an age of peace as the king. I want you to look at, um, and by the way, the title of the message is King of Kings, and I'll explain to you in just a little bit how much I wrestled this week with coming up with this sermon. The text is Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 21, 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I 
am making everything new. It's the Word of God. And it paints a very compelling picture of what reality will look like when human history comes to an end. And make no mistake, if you're bound so completely by the finite rationality of science that you can't imagine a day when Jesus will return, if this place of mud and flesh and brick and bone is all you think is real, your picture of reality is way too small. There is a day coming when all things will end as the Bible has predicted and Jesus will reign. That is not a very great stretch of the imagination. And on that day, there will be some eternal things that will happen. And this passage reminds us that one of the things that's going to happen at the end of days is that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne undisputed as the king of all kings. We will all see it. We'll acknowledge it. The genius of Tolkien when he wrote The Lord of the Rings is that he didn't want it to be a simplistic allegory where he just took all the story elements in the gospel and replaced them with some, some like other a creature, like a wizard or a lion or something. He didn't want to do a one-for-one exchange. He wanted to show the beauty of the Christ story but in a way that people who thought they were familiar with the gospel wouldn't see it coming, but once they saw it, they would know that this is the story of what Christ has done. When we see Christian symbolism in the Lord of the Rings, it's not a bunch of bored pastors with too much time on their hands, wishfully thinking that Tolkien had this in mind. Tolkien was one of the people who led C.S. Lewis to Christ. He was an ardent Christian, a lover of Jesus, and he loved the power of a story to tell the greatest truths in the human experience. And so in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, instead of having one person represent Christ, he tells the Christ story through at least three key characters. And if you are confused by this, let me just break it down quickly for you. In the wizard Gandalf, we see Christ as the prophet, the one who is filled with power that is supernatural, who knows all things and guides people and protects them. We see in Frodo... Christ as priest. Now you might not see that. All you see is an annoying little guy who needs everyone else to protect him. But in the end, he bears the ring. He takes it on himself, knowing the full weight of it. He is the one who stands in between this dark fate and humanity. And then in the end, in this climactic moment, we see in Aragorn, Christ as king, who would be seated on the throne and bring hope and usher in an era of unending peace, he would rebuild all the things that were broken. You see the message of hope. You see the message of hope in what he says when he says, let us together rebuild this world that we may share in the days of peace. Did you catch that clip? That little bit he said. And this scene reminds us that one day Jesus, not in a science fiction fantasy story, but in reality, is going to say very similar words. I am here now on my throne. I'm going to reign forever. And I'm going to bring a happy ending to the dismal story of human history. See, in the preaching schedule, I was slated to preach on the kingdom of God, 
or the kingdom of heaven, really interchangeable terms. And I was looking at Matthew 13 because Jesus spent so much of his preaching ministry trying through parables and stories to describe what the kingdom of heaven was like. There are so many facets to this kingdom that I felt like just telling one of those stories could not do justice. And so I was wrestling all week. I told my community group on Thursday night, on Friday night, I'm sorry, help me. I have no idea yet what I'm going to preach on Sunday. Most weeks by Tuesday, I have the sermon in my head. It's there. This week, Friday night, I was in a panic because I can write a sermon. It's not a hard thing. But I didn't know what God wanted me to say. That's a much harder thing. And then they prayed for me, and Saturday morning, it just came flooding in, as almost all good thoughts do for me, came in the shower. <clears throat> I don't know why that is, but the shower is a blessed place in my house. And uh, I almost don't want to remodel it, because I think there might be some mojo in that old mold <laughs> that helps me. But, but I realized, instead of describing the kingdom from the periphery, talking about all the subtleties, I wanted to talk about what a kingdom is. Why is it that life in Christ is referred to so often in this analogous term, the kingdom? We use that word, but I wonder if we fully understand. And what I realized with crystal clarity Saturday morning is this basic thesis of my message is that the kingdom of God is simply this. It is Jesus as king in our lives. That's the explanation of the entire Christian story is that it is a story of a kingdom in which the true king actually rules as king over people's lives and over the earth. But before we can look at that hope-filled conclusion, we got to look at the really troubled and difficult history. And so here's how I want to approach it. I want to give you a history lesson, and then I'm going to very quickly unpack a couple things from this passage for us. Fasten your seatbelts. I think this history lesson is indispensable. We cannot talk about the king without talking about what we have done with the king since the beginning. When the world was first made, the story begins with God being rejected as king. At the beginning of all things, the world was made in such a way that God ruled and creation obeyed perfectly. Everything worked the way it was supposed to because God, who was filled with love, ordered everything to work in harmony. It wasn't very long, though, before that peace, or what the Hebrews called shalom, it's a very important word at Harvest, we use it a lot, the peace that comes when everything is the way it's supposed to be. The peace you feel when you're curled up on the couch with someone you love and your children are safe and sound asleep in their beds and the fire is crackling and there's money in the bank and your health is good and you just got a promotion and your marriage is great. And when everything is working the way it's supposed to, that unshakable sense of peace you have about your life, that peace is God's design for all human life. And that shalom was there in the beginning. And then it was broken. And it was broken because for some reason, the first man and the first woman who lived in perfect peace in paradise with God ruling as king felt that that was not enough for them. It never seems to be enough for human beings. 
Why is it that when God is on his throne and our lives are at peace, it doesn't take long before we grow bored of that situation and we reach for something more? And that's what they did. They reached for the forbidden fruit. And with that one act of rebellion, they rejected the rule of God and decided they would call the shots. Later on, when, e- when Israel groaned under slavery in Egypt, when they cried out to God for deliverance, he heard them and miraculously he brought them out of slavery into the wilderness on a journey that would take them to a promised land filled with comfort and peace and victory. In that setting, God himself served as the king over Israel. It is what we call in government, as a form of government, what we call a theocracy, where there was no human ruler, but God himself was the ruler, the monarch over the country, and that's the situation they had. And they were delivered into the promised land. God used an earthly leader named Moses to be instrumental in that. But there was no question that Moses was second to God. God was the king of Israel. But after they became established as a nation, and isn't this almost always the way it works? When we're hungry, when we've got the eye of the tiger, when our lives stretch out before us and we really need God to show up, we are so humble. Please, God, I just I want to follow you. Give me a, a spouse. Give me a good job. Give me a fortune. I just want to follow you. But once we get everything we wanted, we sort of say to God, thanks, man. You're awesome. Now, if you would just stop messing with my mojo, just you're cramping my style. Come to a comfortable container on the side of my life and let me just have my stuff and enjoy it now. Now, I'm not saying that describes everyone, but that describes almost everyone. It seems to be human nature that when we finally get what we want, we push this God to the side, revealing what we wanted was not a king. We wanted a genie in a bottle or a spiritual ATM of blessings. And so they cry out for a human king. They look around and said, all the other nations have this very intimidating looking king sitting on a throne, leading them in battle. We want one of those. We feel silly saying that an invisible God is our king. We want a human king just like everyone else. And so they start making noise. Samuel at the time was Israel's prophet. And he was very disturbed by what they were asking for. He was seeing that the people of God were once again rejecting God as king. Moses himself had predicted to them, when you enter the promised land, you're going to ask for a king. And I promise you, this is not God's plan. But if you're going to do it, Make sure you get a good king. Of course, they didn't listen to that either. When Samuel hears the noise they're making, he's offended because he is serving as the human leader in in the name of God over Israel. And he mediates between them. And he hears this and he knows how upset and how personally God's going to take this. Here's what God says to Samuel in response to the people's request. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. In the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 8, he would go on to warn them that you you should be careful what you ask for. We'll give you a king, a human king, just like all the other countries. But this king will not be a king like God. This king will take from you the best of your possessions for himself. 
This king will use you as a labor force for his own ambitions and will not look out for your interests, but you will be resources to look out for his interests. He will take the best of your daughters and your wives. He will tax you to the point of exhaustion. He will send your sons and your brothers and your fathers to war to die for the expansion of his kingdom. This will be the story of your future. You ask for a human king, but no human king can be a king like God. Because the one flaw every human king has is that he is human like you. And because he is like you, he will do only for himself where God is love and he will look out for you. They completely ignore what Samuel says. And he says to them, when that day comes, when the kings abuse you and you're tired of them, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Well, you know that the rest of Israel's history is one horrible king after another. Raped and pillaged the people, taxed them, used them for his purposes. Everything that was predicted came to pass. Eventually, the nation was divided. It was conquered, fell into the hands of oppressive foreign empires. One after another handed the Israelites off to each other as a prize of conquest. And then for 400 years, God doesn't even bother to talk to Israel through a prophet. Every married man knows what this period feels like when his wife just stops talking to him for like two days. The first day, maybe you feel like it's a little bit of relief, but then by the second day, you know you're in big trouble, right? Hey, she's silent, and the silence is not golden anymore. I'm starting to get worried. For 400 years, God goes, you know what? You don't listen, so I'm not even going to talk to you. You just stew in the reality that you asked for what I told you was not good and you got everything I said. I want to let that marinate for you. That freedom from God is not real freedom. They needed to dwell on that for generations to realize that freedom from God is not real freedom at all. And then imagine the stir among the Israelite people. When one day a wild man named John in the Judean wilderness begins to proclaim loudly, repent, for the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. What did he mean when he said the kingdom of God is near? What he meant was that the king is near. What he was revealing is a simple truth. That without a king, there is no kingdom. It's a meaningless word. Jesus was about to come, and John was the opening act for the real concert. And what he was saying is, the one who's coming after me is the king which we always should have had. It is the return of the rule of God over us. We've tried with human kings, and look at the mess we've made of our lives. Some of you know exactly what that means. Because you have walked without the rulership of God in your life, and it has not gotten better. You might think you're freer, happier, but somewhere deep down in your heart of hearts, you know that it was a mistake to shed the rulership of God and go it alone. If you haven't learned that already, I promise you in the Lord that you will, because this is an inescapable truth 
of spiritual life. And so John says, the king is coming and with him will come a kingdom, which the angel said to Mary when she was pregnant, his kingdom will never end. This will not be a king like any other king you've had before, but this king will sit on the throne forever and he will be a king who will love his people, will inspire their hearts, will bring peace. And we are sitting in this room 2,000 years later, proving that that angel told Mary the truth. There has never on earth been a kingdom that has endured as long as the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when I say kingdom, there are no national boundaries. We have no army with guns. There's no flag. I once saw in my kid's classroom the Christian flag. I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't wave it in my house. It's not that kind of kingdom, but it is a real kingdom in which a real king reigns on the throne. That is the story and the summary of what Christianity is. It is the rulership of God over his world and his people. Now, I want you to, uh, some of you look like you're about to fall asleep, so I want to bring you back to the world of the living with this. Why am I giving you a boring history lesson? And why am I making so much out of this obvious churchy fact that Jesus is king? Because I'm convinced now, after pastoring one church for 15 years, after reading thousands of pages on the state of the church, I am convinced that the greatest failure of the church is that we say Jesus is king, but we don't actually believe it at all. Now, if you are in a good place with the Lord, don't feel me rebuking you for no reason. For some of us, Jesus is really the king. But when you look at the state of the church in America and beyond, it is clear that this idea of Jesus as king is not as real as we claim it is or as it ought to be. And when it is the summary of what Christianity is, then if that's the, the grading curve by which we are measured, is Jesus king, undisputed king over your life and my life, over our households, our finances, our energy, our children, over everything we call ours, if Jesus is king, then we are in fact truly walking in Christ. And if he is not, then whatever we call Christianity is a pale shadow of the real thing. That's why this statement matters. Because it is a simple and clear lens by which you can evaluate whether the spiritual life you have is the real spiritual life which Jesus died and rose again to offer to us. What then does this rulership, this kingship of Jesus mean? Pay attention because I'm going to go through this quickly. There are some very simple implications of this for us. And the first is that the, the kingship of Jesus means the restoration of God's rule. Simple. For Jesus to be king means that the God whose kingship has been rejected again and again will finally be restored in our lives as king, as he should be. Shalom will become possible because the king who produces that peace, who orders the world, will be seated in the place of authority again. Paul predicted in Philippians 2.10 that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he means is one day all doubt, all debate will cease and Jesus will clearly be proclaimed like the climactic moment in which in true lies in which Jamie Lee Curtis realizes her husband really is a spy and not Harry the boring computer salesman and he's vindicated and you go, wow, there's no doubt. You are a stud. One day, everyone who says, why is everyone getting so excited about church and Jesus? One day, everyone will know that Jesus Christ told the truth. He was the truth. Here's the thing, though. Some will be saved by that confession, and some will be crushed by it. Not everyone will make that confession in time. For some, it will be like that kid who swears he knows the answer to the test question, but can't recall it during the test. And when the teacher says, turn in your pencils and your sheets, and then walking home, he remembers the answer. And he says to the teacher, please, please, I know the answer now. Can I correct my paper? And she says, no, the time for the test is over. The grade you have is the grade you get. I don't enjoy saying things like this. It's not my invention that it should be so final, so black and white. But the picture the Bible tells us is that one day all doubt will cease regarding Jesus. And some will find that they came under his mercy and are are written in the Lamb's book of life. And others will find that they are verbally making a confession that their lives never made. We cannot get to the hopeful crowning of the king without going through the hard reality of the final judgment when all human beings will account for the lives that we lived. There's no getting around that. As a compassionate man, I wish I could find some masking tape or duct tape solution to cover over this ugly part and just say, let's all just go to heaven. But here's what Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 say again that he saw a great white throne, and on it was Jesus seated. And all the dead arose and stood before him, because as with all things, we will give an account of ourselves. Life is not just a freebie where nothing matters. Life matters. Everything's important. Everything has consequences. And we will all account for the days we walked on this earth. Most of all, The important question of our lives, the defining question of our lives, is what did you decide about this Jesus? It is the question worth 100 points on a 100-point exam. Every other answer, it's just wasted lead. This judgment is the most important. We can argue and debate, and I would welcome that because I love talking about Jesus with people who are racked with doubt. I love it. I would love to buy you lunch. You don't even have to buy me food. I would love to buy you lunch and talk to you about your doubts about Christianity, about Jesus. But you cannot afford to simply end your days in a comfortable pocket of self-defined doubt and skepticism because these words are true, and they may very well come to pass in your life. And I don't want to give you a safe place to hide from this reality because that would be irresponsible and untrue. Before the king can reign forever, it must be decided who is with him and who is not. And my earnest desire is that everyone we love will be with us in heaven, that the whole world would hear 
about Jesus. You see this important, (laughs) get to that picture in a second. God himself will be with them and be their God. It's as if he's saying, finally, when Jesus is on the throne, God will once again actually be our God. And what that reveals is right now, there are a lot of other things that are our God. But one day that matter will be settled, and with undivided hearts, we will know that God rules over everything. Here's another way of putting it. The Christian journey is a journey of lordship. Instead of rejecting God as our king, the entire trajectory of the Christian life is acknowledging more and more every day that Jesus is the king over my whole life. That is the journey that all of us are on. And one day, his rule over us will be complete. Now, I flashed that picture. I'm going to show it to you again because we Americans are very uncomfortable with this idea of a king. This is not a political statement. You can't tell from this picture who I did or did not vote for. And the reason this picture makes you uncomfortable is not whether you're Republican or Democrat, but we don't want any sitting U.S. president wearing a crown. We limit our presidents to two four-year terms unless they get us through a war and we give them a tip, a third term. That's the only time that happens. The truth is we like to limit the authority of our leaders because the idea of somebody, a fellow human being, having unquestioned and unlimited authority over us terrifies us. If he were not President Obama, but his royal majesty, King Obama, and he could come up to you and say, hey, your children look really good. I want your sons to go to war and your daughters to come to my harem. And there's nothing you could do because these big guys with swords and knives and guns are saying, you're going to make this happen. Are we okay with the idea of anyone having this amount of, un- let me get that picture off there, this amount of unquestioned authority over our affairs? Well, that's at the heart of the American spirit, isn't it? No one will ever rule over us like that. And yet, without flinching and without apology, God says, no, that you've got that wrong. Human kings will fail you every time. In Israel's history, even their two finest kings were miserable failures in the end. But he says without apology, do you know who I am to be to you? I am to be your king. That is who Jesus is to us. It is the most reliable measure of spiritual maturity, I think, is the degree to which Jesus is king over your heart and all the affairs of your life. See, it is not enough to be happy that Jesus is my savior. He must be the king over all of my life. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that until that's perfectly in place, you're not Christian. But there is no valid Christianity I could describe to you that does not include the kingship of Jesus over the totality of our lives. I'm not saying that Jesus should be the homeowners association board president of your life. I'm not saying 
that he should be the mayor of the town of your life or even the president of the nation of your life. What God is saying to us is that Jesus is to be the undisputed, hands down, no questions asked, no negotiating ruler over everything. There was a bumper sticker popular when I was in college, and it, it said, in, you know, it said one of those little cutesy things, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. I think that's a very true statement. That unless your picture includes Jesus having dominion over everything, you will never really experience the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. This is a message that is not being spoken in the church all over the world as much as I think it should be. And I don't want that to be a shortfall here anymore either. Our journey as Christians is not simply to know more about the Bible. I've gotten so many complaints about the water's edge being fluffy. Give us inductive Bible study. More meat, more technical this and that. Let me tell you something, church in America. You are educated so far beyond your obedience. It's shameful. Yes, it's good to learn, but the thing that you need most is not more information about Jesus. It is to bring yourself to the Bible and to ask hard questions about whether this word of God has had its way with me. I'm not trying to defend something I wrote. I'm trying to defend a way of looking at the word of God that the greatest deficit... (laughs) Whoa, I'm having trouble up here. The greatest deficit we have with respect to God's word is not that we don't know enough of it, but that not enough of it has been taken seriously and taken deeply to heart. I hope that phrase resonates in your memory. We are educated so far beyond our obedience. I'm not telling you to don't learn anymore. Keep reading. You don't need the water's edge to do an inductive Bible study. If you're a green berets of the word of God, go get yourself a good book and leave the water's edge alone. It's meant to bring you into the word of God to ask probing questions about your response to Jesus. And I hope that your response to him is simply this. You win. You are king and you have dominion over everything. Because that is the final terminal point. That's the end station that our lives as Christians are heading towards. And blessed are those who call him king today. Let me give you one last implication of the kingship of Jesus. And it is that it leads to the redemption of a broken world. It says at the end of the Bible that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That when he reigns as the unquestioned king of all things, when all creation has confessed him as king and he's seated on the throne, then the death, the decay, the pain and the sorrow that has always marked life in this fallen world of ours. Has it marked your life? I mean, I know it has. I've walked a lot of you through some of the deepest valleys of your life. It's marked my life. There is pain everywhere, death everywhere. And one day, just like that, he's going to make it all go away. We will be done with pain and death and decay and a new era of peace forever will begin. But the amazing thing is, though Jesus will one day complete that work, 
it is already a work in progress. It began when he walked among us. And all of those who walk with Christ, follow him as king, participate with him in this slow and steady work of the rebuilding and the redemption of a broken world. The truth is that your life and my life are signs of that redeeming, rebuilding, repair work. Think about who you were when you were far from Jesus. Think for a moment about the kind of marriage you would have been in. I know for sure that I, if I weren't Christian, my marriage would be a wreck today. I am a very bad human being. Don't leave me hanging. Are any of you guys with me? You guys are like, sinner. I probably would have strayed. I probably would have discarded my family in a mindless pursuit of power and wealth and station in life. I probably would have chased things and saw people as people that I could discard along the way. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. If you would have met me when I was younger, I don't think you would have liked me a lot. And I just wonder how many of our lives are filled with stories of amazing repair. How it's still being written out today. The foolish things we've done to ruin our marriages and how God is stepping in to give them a second chance. The despair, the loneliness, the depression that wants to win the battle for your heart. And every day God is pushing it back a little bit, giving you a little breathing room, a little hope that someday you will have victory over this. Imagine how bleak the picture would be without Jesus around. It was just you and the demons you fight against. What would this world be like? The world is filled with the evidences that God is already at work pushing back the darkness and repairing broken things and broken lives. Now, the reason I say the kingship of Jesus is so related to this repair work is that those of us who are with Jesus in name but have not acknowledged him fully as king, well, I know that you will write a check here or there, and I'm not saying that disparagingly. I mean, those are significant acts. You will write a check here or there. You will go to a a trip here or there, volunteer, do something righteous, and you will see some of that in your life. But if you do not acknowledge Jesus as king over everything, you will miss out on so much in your life. You will miss out on a treasure chest full of experiences where you get to participate in the great repair work of Jesus. I don't even really like the word volunteer that much. I know it's used a lot in the church. It's made popular by a number of prominent Christian writers I think it's a very American word. Because the word volunteer, even in spirit, never shows up in Scripture. The word God uses consistently to address us is the word doulos in Greek, which is servant or slave. See, the word volunteer speaks of my nobility. The fact that I autonomously and sovereignly had control over my time, my energy, my resources, and like a good citizen or a good neighbor, I volunteered of myself and I give a gift of me to someone who otherwise would never have had it. Hey, 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 hey. I rock. Now, I know that's not the self-smug pridefulness with which we say it, but I'm saying the word volunteer is actually not a very Christian idea. 
The truer picture is this. That I see in Jesus a king so worthy that I instinctively bow my knees and I say to him, if you require anything of me, your word becomes my command. This idea of volunteering melts in the face of one whose authority and goodness towards me is so blinding, so great, that my first response to him is, I will follow you to the ends of the earth, even to my grave. This is the Christian heart. It is not one of noble volunteering, of giving of gifts. It is of bowing the knee before Jesus and proclaiming through my whole life, I finally met someone worthy of such worship. You have all of me. What else could I do? For those who follow Jesus this way, you will experience the privilege and joy of participating in the repair work on earth. You'll become his hands and feet. You will leave this world more beautiful and God-filled than when you found it. You will make a mark that will last forever and you will become part of countless stories of radical change and life transformation. That is the privilege of those who will not manage their lives, will not lead their lives, but will give their lives in submission to the one worthy king. Ask anyone who has crossed over that boundary and yielded to Jesus in every area. And they'll tell you that their Christian journey began that day. That on that day, they understood what this kingdom is. If for you the kingdom is simply a tribal affiliation, if it's, I'd rather be Christian than Muslim, I'd rather be Christian than Hindu, Christian than atheist, if it's just a way of labeling the tribe with which you identify, then your experience will always be less than what it was meant to be, what less than what it could be. This journey is a journey of kingship. And so I want to ask you a simple question. If this is a measure of real Christianity, then where does that leave you standing this morning? And please understand my heart. (laughs) I'm not trying to get in anybody's face to make you feel guilty about this. That is the farthest thing from my mind. I am asking you a real question. Are you Christian because you stopped smoking? You stopped cussing? You try really hard not to look at other women in the mall when your wife is around. Is that what makes you Christian? Is it that you memorize a set of beliefs? You get an A plus on the quiz if I give one. Have you trusted Jesus with everything? Have you received his mercy? Do you now walk as a servant under the rulership of a king? This must describe us if we are meant to be called Christian. There is no other way for me to present to you the Christian faith. And so I'm going to leave that there. I'm going to stop talking And I'm going to let the Lord keep talking to us. I want to invite you into a time of prayer.
I really don't believe that Christian life is a story of maintenance, just keeping up habits, keeping up appearances. But the journey we're on, this thing we're, we're doing, is that every day we're meant to acknowledge Jesus as King more and more. That is the only way, ultimately, we will experience the kind of change that God is pushing in us, wanting to produce in us. Without this kingship, Christianity becomes very safe, very boring, very toothless. But if you embark on an adventure of calling Jesus the king over all of your life, I promise you, you will not be bored. You will not need to buy more things, eat more food, go on more trips just to feel alive. You will be alive in ways you never imagined. You will live life on the edge of your seat. You'll be a part of important things. It's a choice every person must make one day. Do I just want to exist or do I want to really live while I was here? I want to leave that question before you. Ask you to respond to Jesus regarding whether he is the king in your life or not. And then I'll pray for us in just a few minutes.
what would it look like? What difference could we make if the 200 people in this room would call Jesus King and live as though we believed and meant that in every aspect of our lives? What would it look like if we stopped making heroes out of people who go to the mission field and realize in stories like our sister Jenny in Haiti that it is just an honest response to having met the one true king. A response that every one of us can make every day in our own lives. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will now settle upon the hearts and lives of your people. That we would not have to wait until the final judgment to realize that you sit on a throne. May our Christianity always be a confession of your worthiness. I pray, God, that when others are trying to understand and make sense of our lives, they won't be able to without thinking about you. Be the reason for everything we do. And Lord, if you call us to something something small and trivial or something great and life-changing. Then I pray, God, that you will first help us to see you, to know that you can be trusted, to know that you are a better king than any human king we will ever know. We have managed to make a mess of things down here running the show. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would firmly take the throne in this church and through us we want to see the restoration of the rule of God over his people and the rebuilding of a broken and damaged world we pray that in our lifetime we will see this and that while we walk the earth we would be truly alive and we ask it in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.